This talk is in honor of Columbus Day, and the title of the talk is Reflection, Rage, and Rebellion. And Patience. I think it's an important just uh, time, a day like this, to just kind of reflect on um, kind of what we were taught about a day like today when we were children, especially those of my generation or older, hopefully the younger generation, um, were told different things. But just just to kind of keep it in mind in terms of um, maybe what we know to be true in our hearts and the story. And and this is so much of what we're doing in the practice to really cut through all the stories, all through the motivation of aversion and attachment, and just to see what's true and connect with that. And this this is freedom. It's really to be able to not deny... You know, the story not to deny what's happened or what didn't happen, but to just really connect with what we see here now, just to look at the land. In fact, I just had a a friend who was uh, a guest of mine this week that is from L.A., and um, he sat here for a week. And um, we had dinner Saturday night in Barrie, uh, and there's a a subway, a new subway that's going to come into Barrie, soon. And we had just a really interesting discussion about it because from some points of view, of course, having a subway shop come into Barrie is the beginning of the end, right? In fact, Dunkin' Donuts is coming. And it's kind of like from one perspective, uh uh-oh. And of course, I'm sure other people are going, oh boy, yeah. But it was just funny to have this conversation in this little restaurant in town. And then he just called today and he said, Michelle, you know, I was driving to work today, and I counted 55 subway shops just on my way to work. You know, it's just, just everything is in perspective, right? And here in our little world in Barrie, we can think, oh no, a subway, and look what can happen. 55, just on his way to work, you know. But that's L.A. Um, but just, it's just interesting to go from pre-Columbus to Columbus how much land is left, you know, and just to reflect on that, to take it in. How does it feel? What are we doing? And how does that connect with this practice? How do we live the teachings? You know, do we, do we attempt to live in a simpler way that doesn't require a lot of domination? and that can bring about more compassion and wisdom rather than domination. You see, it's all so connected. I'd like to read a poem by Pablo Neruda, and it's a book called The House in the Sand. And most of the poems are about his relationship to the ocean. And this one is called The Sea. This fence, this gateway toward the limitless, and why we inherit fences, padlocks, 
walls, prisons. We inherit limits. And why? Why didn't we reject at birth everything granted to us and everything we did not include? The fact is that we had to agree before being. After being and knowing, one learns to fence in and to close up. Our wretched contribution to the world is a narrower world. It's a slight judgment there. (laughs) But it's so beautiful. It's like we take birth. You know, we take birth into this human existence and we have to face the prison of our attachment, our identification with, or of attachment, our identification with aversion, um, to the vulnerability, this, this rolling of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, how do we get free in this, in an inner and an outer way? How do we come from this deepest center of our being with a flexibility and an adaptability rather than control, a responsiveness, again, rather than through domination or submission? So hopefully we're motivated to not make the world a narrower world through our attempts to control it. So we have this uh, paradox of formlessness and form and getting attached to either one. To get attached to formlessness is a form of suffering. To get to be attached to form is a form of suffering. Suffering to be free of both is liberation. To just be free in one is still a prison. So one way that I think that helps us um, as we stay in touch with our deep aspiration to be free and our deep aspiration be to compa- to be compassionate is really to look at our impatience in this process, our impatience with ourselves and our impatience with others. Again, just to contemplate, just if you heard everybody's thought process in this room, just the ten minutes before the sitting. You know, sometimes it's helpful to just look around and see everybody's head and just imagine what's going on in their head. You know, just can imagine if you could hear it, the din, you know, <laughs> and then you just kind of multiply that times the planet. And you see why Neruda is saying, wow, when we take birth here, it's so easy to become comfortable in our little prison and make it a more narrow world. But the, the predicament is really that we want so much to be free. You know, we want so much to be compassionate, and yet we have to pace ourselves. And if we don't, we tend to give up. You know, that feeling of just we try so hard and then forget it. 
and then we try so hard and then forget it. And then there is a middle, a middle way where we do the best we can and accept our limits as they are right now in time. And then we do the best we can and accept our limits doing the best we can at this point in time. And that's the middle path, no matter what we're facing in an inner or an outer way. And I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful to be encouraged to relax and to receive and to be patient, <laughs> but we can't force those. We can't force ourselves to be relaxed, you know, relax, you know, <laughs> receive, you know, when we're tight. It's just that's not being in the present moment. Being tight when we're tight is relaxing. It's relaxing into tightness. You know, so this, this isn't easy for us to actually actualize moment by moment because the conditioning is to dominate. The conditioning is to oppress. You know, it's really, it, the conditioning is to be related in some ways to objects um, out of attachment and aversion. And so we can't force patience, but we can be, become more patient with impatience. And again, that can be a paradox, but um, I would like to talk about that tonight, how we do that, or how we, we learn to do that. One of um, my favorite images for this is, you know, if you remember being a kid and learning to tie your shoes with you know, real shoelaces, not Velcro, <laughs> but real shoelaces, and you had a really good knot. You know, just like one of those knots that for a kid just looks like, you know, it's going to take forever to undo. And just think, think about how that felt. You know, just like, just the utter frustration of not being able to just do it. And then to just see, what does it take to undo a really tight knot? You know, and, the, and there are layers of knots in us, layers. And, you know, for, I mean, for me, it's always that sense of it really takes this softening from the outside, just this utter patience, and just slowly you soften it and soften it and soften it from the outside. But it really opens up from the inside, yeah? You know, when you, when you soften that knot enough around the edges of it and soften it, Eventually, it just untangles itself. So we really can't say that it untangled itself. Yeah? We did make some effort. You know, and this is the paradox. If we could just say, okay, forget it, just let it happen naturally, well, it requires showing up, yeah? It requires that softening process and being very gentle, very patient, so that our system trusts us. I mean, so many times I'll have that feeling like my body and mind will go, oh no, Michelle's going to try to get rid of this. You know, like, uh-oh, here she goes again. You know that feeling, you're out walking, and it's like, oh boy, you're, you know, like, I'm going to really get to the bottom of this now. And the system just goes, uh-oh, because what are we doing? We're fiddling. You know, we're, we're messing around with that knot. You know, we're making it tighter. And our system is, it's because we're motivated out of aversion. 
And the system goes, oh, no. I mean, even that place where we just, we want to be free. Yeah, we have that idea. And then we want to do it right now. That's violence. We take that really sweet aspiration and we can do ourselves in. We'll have so much self-hatred because somehow we're not, we're not getting it right, right away. And that self-hatred is really a protection against the vulnerability of the pace it really takes. And then again, it's, can we accept that as a, as a form of patience, accepting our limitation, and really knowing, well, what does it take for us to learn to trust ourselves? <laughs> well, the degree to which we're impatient will be the degree to which our system doesn't trust ourselves. And how hard a teaching that is, yeah? Over and over again, you know, if you think of the process, even the metaphor of a staircase, you know, and we, and we just, whatever step you're on will be somehow not the right step, yeah? Like we think that we should be on this other step. We should be, we compare ourselves with ourselves the last retreat or the 10 minutes ago, you know, that we think somehow that, that, you know, if we were just on that step, then I could get liberated. You know, if I just wasn't having this happening, then I could let get liberated. It's amazing. We, it's just to be where we are. It's so simple, and yet it's so hard for us because we want to control. So I can assure you, yeah, being on whatever step, being where we are, is where we get liberated, you know. <laughs> and it helps to have a sense of humor about that. There's a um, place that I bike ride by sometimes, if I have time. It, it's a longer bike ride for me, and it's through the woods. And I come out, it's on a dirt road. Um, and I have this, um, I, was, I was bitten by a dog when I was a child, and I do not really like it when a dog runs out at me. And then when I learn where those dogs are, I have that anticipatory fear. And then sometimes I'll just avoid that just so that I don't have to go through the fear. I'll go a different way. But there's this one way that I'm either going to have to go like three hours out of my way or I have to like face this dog, right? (laughs) It's like I start building up like, here we go. And it's just so funny because I can get that, I get that dog now. Like we have a relationship. And then there's this other dog. I swear to God, this dog looks like the Tasmanian devil. I mean, it's just like, where did they get this dog? I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And I don't, you know, I don't know what they have at the end of the driveway. But the dog can't, it doesn't, I don't know if this dog is either really limited mentally. You know, like, maybe it really can't do anything but run back and forth right by the edge of the driveway. But it, it just, this is what it does. It comes up just nuts, you know, just nuts, bonkers with rage, you know, and then it just runs back and forth, runs back and forth, and I almost want to go, ha ha. (laughs) 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 You don't seem to be able to go over that edge, whatever it is, you know, it's like, I'm so happy, like, I just stand there like, oh, this is great, you know, I mean, it's just so funny, and just, but to feel like when I get over that, oh no, he's going to bite me, to, wow, what kind of mind state? This being is in just agony. Just this, just this, it's like a, you know when you have a multiple hindrance attack? 
you know, but it's like if you could imagine the highest level of restlessness and rage, that seems to be the state this dog is in. I mean, it's just, and then I'll just stand there and I'll be like, wow. Oh, you know, whenever we heal conflict, it's when we understand the suffering of others. You know, and that's the freedom. It's like I have to go, though, because of that thing that happened to me from a, as a kid. I have to go from having compassion for myself, having connecting with the fear each time. That's compassion for dukkha. And then just connecting with that fear. And if, you know, with whatever we have, it's like it's a matter of learning how to tolerate that fear and not push ourselves beyond the edge so that we learn from it rather than feel debilitated from it. So we can't force this process. It untangles from the inside, but it requires this middle path of not giving up and not trying too hard. This process requires a certain level of uncomfortability. It's called the wisdom of insecurity. And as we do this, I think we learn that the spontaneous transformations happen when we get out of the way and allow the natural process to happen. But learning to get out of the way and be attentive is the issue and not going to sleep in that process. So ultimately, moving from um, a place of conditioned control or submission to really collaborating with the unknown is the journey that we're really going, going from to, that just gradual shifting from being willing to be uncomfortable enough to be with the unknown whatever that means. And it really means relinquishing accepted concepts and responding authentically, which is in the present moment. And we, we really do get an increased ability to navigate through the unknown. We do become more fluid and adaptable because we're starting to embrace the idea that all experiences and all emotions are meaningful because they help us to learn to develop wisdom and compassion. So there's really no experience that can't be transformed. And how inspiring that is. I um, had a friend that I met when I was one and a half years old. And um, there was a growing learning in me about what kind of utter poverty was in in her becoming my friend. And it, it was like a series of experiences that... Uh, kind of helped me open to her suffering in a way that was really important to me when I was very young. Uh, and the kind of, kind of epitome of it was uh, we lived far enough away from school 
that we couldn't take the bus, but we lived right on that line, so it was um, quite a walk. And I grew up around here, so it was um, good winters. And her parents couldn't afford afford boots. Um, and she was allowed to get one pair of shoes every year and one pair of rain boots. And if you know the old rain boots, it's like they weren't insulated in any way. Uh, but they, these were really cheap rain boots, so she would wear those when it snowed. And when we would get to school, the edge of the boot would cut into her leg to the point where they'd be bleeding every day. She'd just be bleeding, bleeding on the walk to school, and just so cold and bleeding. And that was her life in the winter. And then her teeth were green because she couldn't afford, you know, the family couldn't afford toothpaste or toothbrushes. Um, And I really empathized so much with her suffering, you know, and I had no idea that I was suffering. And I thought we had lots, you know, but we didn't really have that much, but comparatively, I had everything in a way materially, you know. But then, you know, over time, I started to learn that my family was even more messed up in a way than her family. And so my mother was basically conscious one to two hours a day. She was drunk the rest of the time. That's just a little example. But it was like um, my father was very violent, extremely violent. Um, But I never could see the suffering in my family. I could see the suffering in her family. And she empathized with my suffering. She couldn't see the suffering in her family, you know, and it was very interesting because my family got so messed up it pretty much died by the time I was five, and I started trying to um, learn how to be a human from her family. And at a certain point, I realized well, maybe that's not such a good idea. <laughs> maybe they're not the best role models. So I tried the other next door neighbors, and you know, this this like was hysterical because see, this was like a little kid trying to find out, you know, well, what's the best way to be human, right? And you know, is there any family that's even remotely sane on the planet? So I went from my family to that family, and then this other family where I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, the experiment totally failed by the time I got to this family. It was outrageous, you know. I would just remember. I won't even describe the scene that you know I hit, you know, in this family. And I was like, just by five, I was like nature. You know, the best bet is just away from humans entirely. You know, I just, I wrote humans off, you know, and I spent so much time just, just that recovering from humans, you know, going back into it, recovering from humans, and just really developing almost like an innocent, innocent trust and faith from just being by the lake and by the land. And this is one of my greatest sadnesses for people that are being born now or recently is that it's so rare to have that. It's like, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be sitting up here. You know, that's how profound that was. That's that the wisdom and compassion I learned from the spirit of the land and the spirits around. And just, you know, just, you know what it's like to be outside right now. You know, you know, you can be so tight. And then, you know, just recently, just the the uh, pine needles, the white pines, those rusty white pines when the wind blows, and you can hear just one, 
just one lets go, it starts falling and you feel that carpet or blanket of needles coming down. And it's just so nourishing. It's like, again, we can feel the sense of at least this ability to go on. You know, which is a big thing, really. And I really didn't find a way until I learned this practice to deal with humans, <laughs> including myself. Um, I just, like, I would just continue to do that. I was teaching school in northern Maine or, you know, whatever it was, environmental ed, but I would just still have that sense that, you know, I can't do this. And then I started to learn about aversion and attachment, and I just felt so inspired. Oh, oh, there's another way here. There's another path to freedom other than just the the ability to go back and forth, which was a a lot. I learned a lot that way. When I came on retreat in 1975, I was coming off retreat from humans. And it was really in this process of being in this hall or walking around here that I started to melt. Like, oh, maybe they're okay. But I don't mean that I didn't include myself. You know, maybe we're okay. Maybe it's workable. You know, maybe maybe we can, you know, maybe we have a way of freedom and compassion here. One of the things I discovered as I did this practice about patience is um, when we feel like we don't have time, that's impatience. You know, and really try to explore that. Look at that. Try to understand it. It's like when we're caught in time, we really don't have time. And it's a cultural madness at this point, you know, I mean, luckily you're on retreat, so you can lose touch with how easily it is to get on overwhelm, you know, or to feel driven. But it's easy to see how we can get over on overwhelm here. And check it out. Check out when you feel an overwhelm. It's usually when you feel like you've lost your sense of humor, but also really that you feel like it's permanent, that there, you know, there's just no sense of spaciousness around time. And when we are really quiet and have a lot of deep understanding, we'll actually feel that we have all the time in the world. And that's, just, that's the beauty of this practice, that if you really drop in to the moment, you're given all the time in the world. That's why we can talk about Columbus Day, because there's no, there's no difference between the past, present, and future. It's all in the present. We have all the time. And it's, it's like that, that, <laughs> that is something to trust, is that sense of timelessness. And I think all along the way, we need to remember that, to remind ourselves of that, that when we get caught in time, we really don't have any time. And it just gets impossibly narrow. And when we step out of time, it becomes possible. In fact, when we've really stepped out of time, it becomes effortless. And actually, 
an ardent, there's like a kind of ardent patience when we really have that. It's not like a, um, oh, I should be patient because patient it's good for me, kind of like eating spinach when you're a kid. You know, and it's kind of like a grim endurance. That's not this kind of timelessness. That's not a refuge. Grim endurance is aversion. One of my favorite musicians is Miles Davis. Um, And one time I heard a story about him. He came onto the stage and he sat down like I'm sitting here, closed his eyes just like this, sat there for an hour, hour and a half. And pretty much a lot of the people in the audience left. You know, it's just like after half an hour, some people trickled out. Nothing was said. Another hour, a lot of people left. Hour and a half, a lot of people (laughs) had left. And then after that, you know, there were some, a few people left. And um, he said, uh, okay, now we can play music now that those idiots have left. Impatience. You know, it's like he was asking a kind of patience, a kind of, you know, a patience with silence that was extraordinary. But if you listen to the best of his music, most of it's silence. And that was his teaching that night. You know, would you have been able to do that? You pay all that money, show up, an hour and a half, you know, that's, that's like a pretty intense teaching. And yet it's so much a teaching in his music. And it's so much what we need to learn about that lowering of expectation and lowering of expectation and lowering expectation. What is it that we think that when we show up, it should be what we want? <laughs> Isn't it interesting? You know, it's like, oh, I've shown up, you know, can't it just be, you know, what I'm demanding it to be? You know, it's like, it's just so funny how insistent we are (laughs) on our preferences. And so much of the practice is learning to be able to go, oh, life isn't like that. Oh, acceptance, it's that shifting into acceptance. My um, older sister liked gangs, and I lived through a series of them in my early childhood, older childhood, and then around 11, 12, there was another kind of the Hell's Angels she got into. Um, And, you know, she'd already had a child, and I was trying to rescue everything. That was my role. Um, And the the head of this gang, um, and he was a bank robber, Lots of, I have lots of stories I've never shared. And, uh, <clears throat> and um, he used to have us go to the beach by gunpoint. I mean, he'd want us to go to the beach, and we all had to go to the beach because he wanted to go to the beach. I'm not kidding. It, it was, we can, it's funny, but it was horrible. You know? And it was like here we were in the car, 
And uh, once again, I was thinking, here we go. And my middle sister, who was a year older than me, was a real um, true fighter. Like, she believed in clean fighting. You know, and that was her code. And she would not fight if she couldn't do it cleanly. And it, she was just really true to that. Um, and this was the kind of situation, you can imagine by gunpoint, that this was not going to be a clean fight. So that domination, she was submitted. And she just, it was killing her. But she couldn't say anything. Um, and I just had this moment in the back seat where I looked at her, and it was like I had no connection to my suffering in this. I have to say, I just had no empathy with myself. But I saw her suffering, and it was just this moment, just one of those transformative moments. I was 11. And I just like, it was like, I couldn't have said to you that I, I would say this is unacceptable, but that's my spirit just zapped into my body. And I said, I have to go to the bathroom really bad. You know, and I like, he said, he was really not wanting me to go, but I, I ran into the house, and I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do. I locked all the doors, um, and then I found a beer bottle, and he, you know, I knew, <laughs> I knew that I was going to be in for it. You know, but I had no thought of, like, anything, but that this was not acceptable. And so I hid behind the door. He came in, and I just hit him as hard as I could with this thing. I mean, I just whapped him. And it was just like he fell backwards, and I slammed the door. He fell backwards out of the door. I slammed the door, locked it, and then realized, uh uh-oh. I had no plan, right? You know, and this guy is a killer. I mean, this was serious. So it's just like I went, I freaked out. It was like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. And I ran downstairs, and I found this place. It was a dirt floor, and I went in this box and covered myself, and he beat down the door. And he, like, looked through everything upstairs, came downstairs. I mean, I was terrified, just terrified. I can't tell you. He couldn't find me. He's, you know, he left. And it was just like, you know, talk about recovering from humans, right? <laughs> I mean, it was like... Um, and I didn't know what was going to happen from that. But actually, it was like... Um, it was one of the biggest lessons of my life. Because it's like he could not dominate me anymore. Not only that, he couldn't dominate my sister anymore. It was like something happened. My spirit stood up, and it stopped it forever. I mean, we used to have our screaming matches and, you know, had our stuff, but he could never push me around ever again. That was that person. But you see, like, I... (laughs) There's so many others, you know, in the world, but, you know... um, (laughs) For me, in that point, that was a middle path. Now, I didn't kill him, did I? No, I could have tried to find his gun. I was that angry. You know, he deserved it. Um, but I didn't do that. I didn't wimp out, but I just did the middle path in that situation. You know, but we don't get to pick and choose necessarily what the middle path is going to be for us ahead of time. But I can share with you so many experiences just in this retreat center of how I've had to work with aversion and what it taught me. 
Um, and some of you know some of these stories, and I'm going to try to pick and choose because I have so many aversion stories. Um, but what what I'm aiming at with these stories is really, for me, um, what it took for me to have access concentration with something unpleasant. So it's, it's, we can have access concentration, meaning the attention can synchronize with something completely so that there's no sense of duality. So with the breath, for example, there can be the attention here. Well, sometimes we have it up in our head, right? We have, mostly we have this idea that attention's in the head, the breath's down here. Access concentration is a victory. It's a huge achievement when we can have the attention synchronized with that movement and there's no sense of, you know, my head looking or my eyes looking down at that movement down there or that the attention traveling down with the eyes, yeah? and trying to find that thing, whatever. It's like when the, when the subject-object comes together, no matter what it is, a sight, smell, taste, touch, thought, whatever it is, that's huge. In one moment, when there's that sense of, that's called access concentration. And so for me, what I learned to do that with was sound. And sound has always been a heaven-hell practice for me because for me the sound of a bird is heaven. And synchronizing my attention with that, learning how to bring my attention to meet that and to understand impermanence from that, to really understand the life cycle of a sound or sounds, to be able to understand its texture, to start opening to unpleasant texture as well as unpleasant texture, you know, just neutral texture. That, that's an amazing exploration for us. And in some ways, in a human situation, it's kind of forced, yet you'll be trying to be with the breath and there'll be a cough. And it's like, oh, you know, it's like, ah, you know, I can't do this. What is it? Our attention got pulled away, yeah? And it's like we think that's an intrusion, because it's really hard to move from trying to be with something to something that we think shouldn't happen. You know, that's what we call a noise. You know, a noise is something that we think shouldn't happen, yeah? There's that controlling again. Uh, so I'll give an example of this. Um, I got a scholarship to this retreat in Wales after I, I worked here for a year. And it was really a big deal. I'd never traveled before, and it was a big deal that the rest of the staff contributed to this retreat for me. And uh, that put a pressure on me. Like, I felt like I had to really even work harder, and um, I was allergic to the building. I was allergic to everything. My room, I was freezing. It was June in Wales, and I didn't bring enough warm clothes, and it was rainy and cold, and I was miserable, just like miserable, you know, and I kept thinking, you know, summer in New England, I could be warm, (laughs) you know, it's like, what am I doing here? Um, And for three quarters of this month, like, I was just sort of like, just kind of sinking in the stuka. And then somebody had left the retreat, and they allowed me to move into this room. I was in a dorm-style room, which I was allergic to, just sneezing, sneezing, sneezing for three weeks. And so I went into this room, and it was like, just the, just, it just started to feel like 
heaven. You know, I was alone, you know, I was secluded. And then it turned out that I was right next to the toilet. Like, there was just this thin wall, right? So I, was, I went to this really like, oh boy, peaceful, great. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have a good week. This is going to be really like, you know, it was bad for three weeks, but now it's going to be okay. You know, and then it was just like, I could hear everybody. Like, I could hear, it was the, there was one toilet. There were 30 students, and it was just like, I started to identify who was who and <laughs> what was what. And it was just like, oh, it was, oh, it was so painful. You know, it's just, I can't tell you the judgments <laughs> that were ar- appearing in my mind. You know, and it just, again, it was like, how am I going to make it? It went from like, oh, boy, another week to, oh, how am I going to make it through this week? You know, never mind this day. You know, and finally, this was like this huge, huge experience. I started just trying to synchronize my attention to the sound and synchronize my attention to the sound and synchronize my attention with the sound. I just, I just really wanted to understand what was the suffering there. And it was only the story that it was this person, or it was urine, or whatever, you know, and it was just like when I could finally just receive the sound, it was totally okay. But that came through total blood, sweat, and tears. I'd be sitting there, and sometimes I would just be sweating from the aversion. I could be sweating from the anticipation of the aversion. You know, and I learned so much with that experience where there was just this moment where I, there was just no me, no person, just that sound. It was freedom. But that was like just the beginning. Then I came here for a six-week retreat after that. And I had a single up in dunes up here that is a staff area now. Um, and some of you have heard me confess this, but uh, I had this teacher that told me to um, just go to your room. Don't come out for meals. Don't take showers. Just, like, you know, stay in your room. Um, and somebody was delivering food to me, and I was really getting pressure cookered. I mean, I was really starting to get a little um, aversive. But I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know that I was really getting too open, you know, in a way. And so it was halfway through that week when I went into the room, and I was afraid to sort of go outside because I was afraid this teacher was going to see that I was out of my room. And so at 2 in the morning one day, I just decided I'd had it, you know, and so much aversion was coming up. And I went outside at night at 2 in the morning, and I could hear this cow mooing, but it was really far away, and it was, it was painful. It was like, oh, it would hurt. It was like the vulnerability, the dukkha. It was so painful, and it was so unbearable, and I went, oh, no. It's like, there's no escape. What can I do here? You know, if I can hear a cow three miles away that's hurting, you see, my mind is one, oh, this is... But it was just like, oh, I better just go back in my room and see what I can do about this. So I went back in my room, not understanding. I didn't understand the relationship so much of unpleasant aversion, any of this yet. I could hear it here, but I didn't really understand it in my heart. So I went back in there, and there was a woman next door that snored like a freight train, just... You know, it was the whole building shook from her snores. It was really um, extreme. That was radical snoring. I mean, it was, and so 
if, if you want to call something radical, I'd call that snoring really radical. It was really radical. And, you know, I was just, again, I was completely lost in aversion. I didn't know I was. And I'm, I go back in my room because I don't know what else to do. And I'm sitting there, and the snoring starts. And I just had it, and I didn't know what to do. So I took my bench, and I, I kind of estimated where her head was. <laughs> And I smashed my bench against <laughs> the, the wall. And the snoring stopped. <laughs> and I was like, I felt so happy, you know, but like <laughs> the happiness was so transitory. You know, I mean, it was just like the, st- the sound finally stopped. And it was like, that was like what I thought freedom was, you know, at that moment, you know, it's like, oh I was so happy and then this guilt and remorse and just like oh just like I felt horrible no really it was horrible it was just horrible you know and then I could hear (laughs) just like like, uh, it really didn't help right you know she she fell asleep again and she was snoring you know and it's just like you know, this is why the Buddha was sitting under that tree so long. You know, this was uh, really difficult. You know, this is not easy to figure out what freedom is. You know, we think it's eliminating the sound. But it was really, this is where I started to see, oh, aversion to aversion. But I hadn't quite figured it out. Yet. I did something really bad again. Okay, so I'm sitting there, and um, then... <laughs> Like, in those days, I think it's improved. I think the maintenance people have actually improved this a bit. But in those days, the sound of the heat when it was cold was really, in my opinion, as an aversion-type loud. And uh, it sounded really loud that night. I mean, it just sounded really loud. Um, she finally fell asleep, and the snoring stopped. And then the heat started, the sound of the sea. And it's, it was in December. Uh, and just, like, and it was just like um, I couldn't handle it you know obviously you know I couldn't I didn't really have deep insight into aversion yet (laughs) and so I had worked here right so I went around IMS and I turned down I turned off every thermostat I turned off every thermostat this was like probably 10 degrees, right, Fahrenheit. And this was probably about 4 in the morning. You know, it was a bad night. <laughs> and then around 8 in the morning, I dared just kind of peek my head. It was You could see your breath. And <laughs> I, like, kind of looked, I kind of went down the steps into the, looked around, and everybody had their coats on. And I just was like, oh, I guess... This isn't working, Michelle, you know. It was so painful. Again, I felt so bad. You know, it's like I kind of, you know, I went around. The 8.15 sitting started. Everyone went in. I went around, and I turned back the thermostats up. And it was just like, I can't tell you. Again, it was just like something happened, like with that experience with that guy, like in the gang. It's like, I'm going to understand this. And it's just like I just hit this level of such uncomfortability, such suffering, and I wanted to understand. And I started to understand the relationship between the unpleasantness, the aversion to it, and what I had been running away from 
in the human world my whole life, which was not the aversion. It was the not being able to tolerate the aversion. No ability to open to the aversion and feel it. You know, so we're telling you that, but to actually understand that and what it is, how to do that, took me a long time. You know, and that was like that level, the the willingness to feel that uncomfortability, the willingness to feel that pain, but also the space. It's like, I didn't, again, you can't push this. But every single time that I've had an experience of really deep awakening has been around something like this, where I just like, I just finally had it. And I just tried to really be with the sound and it cut through the concept. And it'll be like that whether it's knee pain or a thought or whatever. It's like the willingness to um, face it. This could be a two-part talk. Uh, maybe, it might be. Cause it's so, uh, yeah. But I'm going to go somewhere here with it. Um, I want to also add to this that it's not only the willingness to feel the pain, but it's also that we care so much. You know, it's like a lot of my own strength has come from the caring so much that I have the strength to do something about it. You know, it's, it's not just the willingness to feel the suffering, but the motivation comes from the care that I do care so much. Um, and I wanted to um, share an experience that I had from a movie re- recently, and it, it's called The Corporation. Um, and it... It's really an amazing film about sort of what's been what's happening worldwide around corporations being much more much more powerful than individual governments, you know, and just the predicament, the suffering that that's creating on the on the planet, and um, how we're either in denial about it or actually taking action, having the strength to take action. And there's this one amazing amazing story of the country of Bolivia. And this this corporation bought the water rights, like the water rights, the drinking water rights. They actually bought those rights of those people in that country. And like, say they were making um, $2 a day. That's the basic wage for most people in Bolivia, $2 a day. 50 cents. They were charging people 50 cents for the water out of that wage a day, per day. And so people were getting really upset and really getting distressed and organizing a bit, but really not that place that I'm describing where suddenly, you know, you just have had it, right? And then people started collecting their own rainwater to save money. And it just seems kind of logical, right, that you could be at least able to save rainwater. They made it illegal. And they made it, they passed a law. This corporation made the country, the government passed a law so that your house could be actually taken away from you if they found a, a rainwater, collect, you know, a cistern. That's how intense this battle got. And then the, <clears throat> the corporation gave money for tear gas and weapons and 
And, and you see these foot, this footage, black and white footage, of people, all they had was stones. And they fought, and they won. You know, it's just like, it's such, it was such an inspiring thing to see that these people just knew it was right. You can't take drinking water. You know, it's just like, what is this? What's happening to this world, right? But just that, and this, the, the title of this talk, I, I was so inspired by the man who helped organize this because he said, in retrospect, um, he said, you know, I know my children and my children's children are going to face a lot of darkness in this world. And yet now I realize the power of people, you know, the power of coming together to fight you know, to fight something so important. You know, and he said that I believe in three things. Reflection, rage, rebellion. But it can be translated as reflection, indignation, and rebellion. And also in this movie, there was a man who's the um, CEO of the largest carpet manufacturing plant in the world. So just picture it, the largest carpet manufacturing plant in the world. And you see him starting in this movie where he's just really doesn't get it, doesn't get the lack of, um, the, the, just the power he had and the power, you know, the pollution that this company has been doing and just amazing. And you see this man transform from that to just slowly the people in his factory started wanting a sustainable factory and factories. And you see him starting to change. He starts reading books. And he's very vulnerable because he's willing to show himself through this process. And at the end of the movie, you see this man get up in front of the whole, this whole audience and he said, I am a plunderer. And he said, I'm a plunderer and I hope that in the future people like me will be put in jail for what they do. You know, and it was just so inspiring to, you know, it's like a lot of the movie, of course, was the hard stuff, you know, of course. But it's also just also showing what the power of this spark that I'm trying to say happens for us. Like, and it happens for us every day in practice where, again, we're not meant to be giving up. We're not meant to be trying too hard. But it's finding that place of patience but an ardent patience, an alive patience, not that grim, you know, stuff your teeth together, you know, just grind your teeth together patience. It's really that trusting that wherever we are is okay. And that that place that we are is the right place to develop liberation. It is the right place to learn freedom. It is the right place to learn compassion. And that when we connect with that, whatever that place is, whether it's fear or whether it's anger or whether it's the breath or whether it's sound or whatever it is, when we connect with what is true, that that's where transformation happens. Whether it's with ourself and ourself or with ourself and another, another being, that it's always out of that connection with the truth and standing there with it, you know, that, that real liberation happens.
to be continued. Let's sit for a minute. Not getting caught in giving up and not getting caught in trying too hard. And just really being wherever we are, connecting with the truth of that, with as much care and wisdom as we can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.